So this episode, I talked to Bill Derizowitz, author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite in the Way to a Meaningful Life, and The End of Solitude more recently. Now, I have a couple different disclaimers before I get into the interview, so I apologize for the slightly longer intro. Um, when I was filming this, I was just getting over a cold, so you may be able to hear that in my voice, and so I also apologize for that. And I wanted to preface this interview by saying that over the next few episodes, I will be examining different facets of teen life and looking at what teen trends can tell us about society. Um, I'm doing this for a couple different reasons. First of all, I think that it's only apt that, you know, someone who is a teenager examines the, the issues facing teens today. And also, recently I was assigned a, an assignment in my history class to actually do a series of podcasts and we had to have, you know, a collective theme and bring together a bunch of different experts. And, you know, it was great for me. It was a perfect assignment for me because that's already what I do. Um, so I was really thrilled about it. Um, however, I'm making a couple adjustments for the assignment that I don't normally do. So the first thing is I've edited a little more for clarity. Normally, I don't take out you know, the ums, the ahs, and all of that kind of stuff because I think it makes the conversation feel more authentic and also because I think it's important for people to realize that interviewers don't have to be perfect, I'm not perfect, um, you know, and I don't want to be a standard of perfection in teens, you know, I stutter a lot when I'm doing these interviews because I'm nervous a lot, but for this episode and a couple of the more recent ones to come, I will be editing a little bit for clarity. Now on to the actual episode itself. I had so much fun filming this episode. Um, I think it was one of the first times I felt like it was kind of a conversation um, as opposed to an interview. And I think I just thought about things so differently after this conversation. And I hope that you guys do too. And I really encourage you guys to sit with this because I think that we talk about and cover a lot of ground here. And I, I listened to this episode multiple times while editing and I still, every time I listened, would have new thoughts and feelings. So I am just so thrilled with this episode and how it turned out. Okay, so my first question is very like broad, but what do you think has changed about college and about college admissions um, since you published Excellent Sheep? Oh, I don't think that much has changed. I think the same trend lines have continued to move forward, so things have gotten worse. I mean, if you just want to look at the admissions rates of elite colleges as kind of an index of how crazy it is, I mean, it was, <laughs> at every point, people always say it can't get any worse. I think when Excellent Sheep came out, the most selective colleges had admissions rates of around eight or 9%. And now, as I'm sure, I don't need to tell you, some of them are below 5%. So, uh, yeah, that. You don't think, like, in terms of COVID, did COVID change anything in terms of admissions? I don't know a lot about the specifics of how COVID changed admissions. I know that a lot of schools became test optional. I don't, I don't really think that's changed much. It certainly hasn't changed the numbers that I was just talking about. Has it really changed the criteria that schools use? Have they started to admit a different kind of student population? I know of no evidence that says that. I was going to ask about this too, because I think that in Excellent Sheep, you talked a little bit about possible solutions to the issue of admissions. And, you know, a couple of mm -hmm. the things, namely like the limits on the number of extracurriculars you could have, and also like test optional, that has actually happened. So do you think that's like, what do you think of that? What are what are your thoughts on the results of the new changes? I actually wasn't aware of that. Um, uh, and again, I'm not sure that I, did I call for the elimination of the use of the SATs? I'm not sure that I did. And actually my opinion, my position on the SATs has changed since then. I think I was wrong about some things. I think the SATs are valuable. And one of the things that they're most valuable for is in identifying students who wouldn't otherwise be identified. Um, and if they were, and if schools took them more seriously, they could also be used to eliminate dumb rich kids, but they never really are. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but they, they aren't used that way in the way that they could be. 
As for extracurriculars, why don't you tell me um, what schools or how many schools, is this a general thing that they're now limiting the number of extracurriculars? So on the common application, it lets you put in 10 different extracurriculars. So some schools, I'll caveat, have a space like Northwestern, for example, has a space where you can put in a resume, which is kind of like makes the whole so it's extracurriculars. Unlimited. Yeah, it's okay. unlimited. Okay. But and go ahead. Yeah, not every school has that. And generally, it's 10 extracurriculars on the common. Okay, okay, okay. 10 is still an enormous number. I mean, I was, I believe if I gave a number at all an excellent chief, the number was three. Okay, 10, does that mean that students aren't doing more than 10? Okay, so they're not doing 12, they're only doing 10. I think that's a crazy number. Yeah. And, yeah. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Well, okay. I was gonna say, and as you say, some schools will allow you to list more anyway. So it's hard, I would imagine that the typical high achieving sort of Ivy plus bound student is still doing a million, you know, probably more than 10. Yeah, for sure. I definitely yeah. think my friends have had a lot of trouble um, limiting their extracurriculars, but I'd also say that I think something that's interesting about it is it's kind of been harder for students who do a lot of extracurriculars for no particular reason mm -hmm. and just for college applications to fit all of their activities versus kids who have been pretty like trained on one thing or another have had it yeah. much easier. Okay. Well, if it, I mean, if it does reduce some of the sort of gratuitous pointless, then that's a good thing. But, but as I'm saying, it sounds like they're just kind of nibbling at the margins. Yeah, for sure. So talk, so I know you mentioned that some of your views on the SATs have changed. So that's, so tell me more about that. Like what, what are your views? How have your views changed since excellent you? Well, I mean, it, they've changed because I've read stuff about it and, um, uh, what I say in Excellent Sheep is that the SATs correlate to a very high degree with parental income and even more with parental wealth. And, and I don't think I say this, but I'd also absorbed some of, the, some of the ideas that they don't actually predict success in college very well. And neither one of those things really is true. I mean, there is some correlation with parental wealth and income but it's relatively small and the correlation with success in college is relatively high. Um, also that what I've read is that um, SAT tutoring doesn't actually make that much difference. Okay, fair enough. But the fact still remains that when affluent families stuff their kids with educational resources in, as, as a way of getting into the fanciest colleges and therefore perpetuating their privilege, they do a lot more, a lot more than just paying for SAT tutors. So I don't think that it disrupts the larger point, which is that what we call the meritocracy, and in principle, I'm not against meritocracy, but as it operates, I mean, I don't like to use the word rigged because it's kind of an overused word, but um, it has, it's been designed or effectively been engineered to be gameable by affluent. And I really think this is the way, you know, elite colleges want it. I mean, they, they pretend that they just want, you know, the fairest system and diversity and blah, blah, blah. But we all know that they need, they need rich parents to pay full tuition. I mean, even the most generous schools only give financial aid to about 60% of their students, which means that 40%, which is a huge number, 40% are families that can pay the full cost of schools that now cost like $80,000 a year. So they want those students, they want those families. And I mean, I, I, I could continue to talk about this, but we can, we can, uh, we can go on to the next question. I mean, I think that kind of goes to a little bit of like class-based affirmative action versus race-based yes. affirmative action. Um, and I don't know how closely or if you've been following, but the the newest Supreme Court docket and the affirmative action case, yeah. um, could you talk a little bit about, about the, the court's upcoming case and what it might mean for college admissions? Yeah, I mean, 
listen, I'm not a legal expert. I haven't followed the case closely. I have some yeah. sense of what it's about. And to take your last question first, almost everybody seems to agree that if the court strikes down affirmative action, elite colleges will try to find, find ways around the ruling and find other ways to get the kinds of classes they want. But you put, the first part of your question puts, put, you put your finger on these, to me, the essential issue, class-based versus race-based. And I advocate for class-based affirmative action and excellent sheep. I'm not the only person to do so. Um, if you look, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I've seen them in the past. If you look, for example, at the number of students of African descent at Harvard, most of them are from upper middle class or wealthier families. Most of them are not descendants of American slaves. Many of them are immigrants or the children of immigrants or just international students from upper class families in Africa or elsewhere in the African diaspora. You know, um, I, had, I had a, one of my niece at Columbia had a, a roommate from Haiti her freshman year. And you think Haiti, well, it's a very poor country, which it is. This was not a poor kid. This was from the, the Haitian elite. Um, so, and I really don't think at this point, and I know that this is open to a great deal of dispute, I don't think at this point that the black child of doctors should, uh, I talked to a young woman who had recently graduated from Haverford and we were talking about her family and I said, so you're middle-class? She said, oh yeah, we're middle-class. My father's a cardiologist. My mother's an anesthesiologist. You know, we live in a cul-de-sac. I went to a private school, but you know, we're not rich. And I'm like, what, in what universe, are, I didn't say this to her, like in what universe are you not rich? So I don't think the daughter of an anesthesiologist and a cardiologist who went to a private school, no matter what her race is, should get an admissions preference. At the same time, the group that is by far, the group of Americans that is by far the most underrepresented on elite college campuses are working class white people. Working class white people are 40% of the country. They're the largest group. They're bigger than all non-white groups put together. And they're, they're virtually non-existent. At, I mean, every once in a while you run into a kid like that in an elite school. Um, so I think this is a matter of fairness. I think it's, a, it's an essential matter of trying to heal our partisan divide in this country. And then let me also just say the obvious thing about the elite, the admissions cases coming before the Supreme Court. There is no question, and anyone who's being honest with themselves knows this, that, that diversity is now riding on the backs of Asian American students. That what you have at places like Harvard is the same kind of discrimination that you had against Jews before the 1960s. And listen, if you really wanted to keep your numbers of black and brown students as high as they are, and admit Asian students in the numbers they deserve to be admitted based on their academic record, which may be twice what they're getting now, there'd be a very easy way to do it. You would just admit fewer white kids. But that's the last thing these schools are gonna do because see the discussion we had before, they want affluent families. They also feel, you know, their constituency to a great extent are their uh, alumni, which means legacy candidates. They also, for some absurd reason, want to maintain uh, competitive sports teams and a huge percentage, much bigger than at a place like Michigan, because Michigan is a huge school. So the, the, the number of athletes is a relatively small part of that whole you know, 40,000 kids. But at the Ivy League schools, which also have more teams than even Michigan, it's a very significant percentage of all the kids at the school. Race-based, uh, class-based affirmative action, no more legacy admissions, no more recruitment of athletes. Let's start with that. I think the other thing that's interesting there is I, I know in New York City, at least, in terms of our public school admission system that is like deeply, it's one of the most segregated in them. I think it yes. is the most segregated in the country, um, is that, you know, the SHSAT or no, wrong one. The, yeah, the, the SHSAT. Uh, there's just so many acronyms for these tests. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, the specialized testing in New York City, we see a huge percentage of Asian American students go from that test into elite high schools. And a big percentage of those Asian American students are actually not wealthy. Um, right. 
which that's is fair. another thing that's really interesting too. Um, and then on that Can same I, note, yeah, go ahead. I don't want you to forget what you're going to say, but I just want to say something about the SHSAT and the selective schools in New York. Yeah. Uh, Wesley Yang, who is one of the best informed and most insightful people about all of these issues, uh, he's explained really what, why there's been, I mean, he's given very persuasive reasons for why there's been such a huge drop in black and brown students at the magnet schools in New York. The first reason is that for, for many years now, elite private schools in New York have had very, um, um, very intensive programs of recruitment for the best students of color. So the kids who used to go to Stuyvesant are now getting creamed off by Dalton and Trinity and wherever. And the second reason is, and this goes to the real problem. The second reason is that there was a huge defunding of gifted and talented programs in K through eight in New York. And this partly has to do with just under defunding of schools. And it partly has to do with this insane idea that is now returned that we're going to make things fair by eliminating those metrics in which uh, black and brown students excel less than others. And, and now this is back now, like somehow we're gonna eliminate calculus and everything's gonna be fair. Um, my ultimate problem with affirmative action, uh, race-based, but really even class-based is that um, it comes too late. It's an attempt to try to fix a problem after the fact. What are we really going to do about the very significant uh, racial gaps in educational attainment and the much more significant class gaps in educational attainment because the class gaps are much bigger than the racial gaps. Well, it's very simple. I'm saying ironically, we just need <laughs> we just need to create a just an equitable society, equitable society, so we don't have to put our thumb on the scales when a kid is 18. For me, I think elementary school is so crucial, and even like before that, pre-K is so crucial. One of the things that's interesting is I went to, anecdotally, I went to a very lead Park Slope public elementary school. And then I went to not as elite of a middle school. And then I kind of circled back around and met up with a lot of the kids from my elementary school in my high school. And so my middle school education just didn't matter as much as my elementary school education. Because um, yeah. I had already like had a leg up from that. Okay, so one of my questions actually that I have like on my list was going to be how would you change elementary schools if you just had total control? I'm not an expert in, uh, in K through 12. Yeah. Um, I do have a friend who runs um, a public charter network in Harlem. And I've talked with her a lot about this. This is one of the things that I think I've changed about in recent years. Another thing. I used to think that charters were evil. And I think some of them are evil, but I think some of them are doing really good work. And I, and I also used to think that unions were automatically good. And I'm a big supporter of unions, but there is a difference between, I was gonna say public sector and private sector, but really the issue is not public versus private. The issue is in industries where it's not just the worker and the employer, where there's a client. So like in healthcare, there are patients. In policing, there are citizens who get policed. In education, there's students. And sometimes, as I think probably we, quote unquote, you and your friends and your community and the people who listen to your podcast recognize that police unions can be a huge, are a huge impediment to proper policing. Teachers unions can be a real problem and teachers unions protect mediocrity. They, um, they create a lot of bureaucracy or they force the city to create a lot of bureaucracy. I used to think that the answer to the problems with public education is just more money. And that's another thing that I've learned may really not be the case. I mean, uh, in a lot of cases, there aren't necessarily disparities between the amounts of money being spent on poor kids and rich kids in public schools. It's just that the poor kids have terrible schools. Why do they have terrible schools? Well, the conditions are terrible uh, and the teachers are often terrible. 
Um, I don't have a lot of specifics to how to solve this problem, but um, there, you know, I mean, different people have different solutions and the real issue, I mean, my friend's schools are great. I think the real issue is scaling, right? How do you go from five really good schools to a million, 900,000 students in the New York City school system? Um, I think teachers need to be at the center of it and we need to make teaching a much more respected, even prestigious on the level of doctor and lawyer. How do you do that? Well, you have to pay them like doctors and lawyers and that costs a lot of money. And how do we get that money? Well, now, I mean, this is probably beyond the scope of our discussion, but I think we have a tremendous maldistribution of the uh, productive, you know, the fruits of our labor in our society. So way too much money going to the wealthy, a lot of government spending is for the wrong thing. I mean, this is a huge problem. And, 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 and you know, solving it is, is tremendously daunting, but I don't, I don't, I don't, there isn't going to be like an easy way to do it. Like we have to accept that the way to do this is a very difficult way. So kind of going back to a little bit earlier, my thought that I didn't forget um, about culture and the elite colleges that we see now, and especially like in terms of the student body, I think that we might see a lot less cultural kind of polarization if we were to do um, class-based affirmative action. So what do you think of the relationship between culture and the students who you're admitting? Well, by culture, you, you mean what? Like you spoke of like in one of the essays in your new book, The End of Solitude, how uh, like religious culture. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I, I think I understand what you're saying. And I was talking about the white working class. And I think, right. yeah, look, I mean, uh, like many people, I recognize and deplore the fact that elite colleges have become ideologically homogenous in recent years. And it's become impossible to, to, to voice dissent from the official orthodoxy. And I don't even mean to, to voice conservative dissent, not that there should be anything wrong with that. But even if you're just kind of center left, even if you just think Hillary Clinton was like a good candidate, um, that's beyond the pale now. So why has that happened? I think it's happened, there, there are a bunch of reasons, but I think one of them, one of the biggest ones has to do with how socially homogenous these uh, the student populations have become and the communities that they come from become. Basically, the people talk about barbell demographics. Maybe you've heard of this. People talk about it in New York City private schools as well, except barbell is a slightly bad metaphor because one side of the barbell, one of the weights is much heavier than the other. So you have a big bolus of students from the uh, professional middle upper middle class, right? The affluent class, the rich and the near rich who by and large are white or Asian. And at this point, some of them are black or Hispanic. And then you have a smaller group that are the, you know, the marginal students from marginalized communities that are admitted on scholarship and, so, and all the programs that have been used to find students like that. Um, in some ways, those groups are very different, obviously. In some ways, they're not, right? If you look at the political beliefs of those communities, they're basically the same and they've become more and more the same in recent years as, you know, people with college degrees used to vote more for Republicans than Democrats. You know, we left that world behind many years ago. Now the Democratic Party is the party of the professional middle class and minority groups. And that's who is at these schools and that's who's at elite colleges. And who don't you have? You don't have the whole world of people who vote for Trump, which whether we like it or not, and I certainly don't, that's half the country. So what that means is that if you really, if you really admitted a cross section of American society, 40% working class whites, 13 or so percent black and so on and so forth, uh, you would have to be prepared for a great deal of, 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 uh, of intellectual and ideological and political conflict and debate at those schools. Now, I think that's exactly what college should look like. I went to college in the early eighties as shocking as it may be to know now, more college-age kids identified as Republicans than as Democrats. This was the early years of the Reagan revolution. And I knew a whole bunch of them. 
both in high school and in college, and it was gross. But when you when you when you have when you're forced into a situation where you end up arguing and debating with people like that, you have to be on your game. You have to like know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's true. Also, that um, a lot of liberals have lost the ability to debate because they don't have to do it in their everyday life. Absolutely, um, Absolutely correct. Yeah. So how does the, again, the like the religious culture in elite schools go, how is that kind of brought on by technology? How does technology play a role in this? Because from my perspective, it also seems like there's a, you know, if you say one thing and someone gets it on video, then that's going to blow up in a way that it never would have before. So how do you see the relationship between Absolutely. technology and the culture? So just for the listeners who uh, don't understand what you mean by religious, because I have a piece in the new yeah. book about how what we then called political correctness and is now called wokeness is a kind of religion for the uh, secular elite. And other people have made this argument now, most famously uh, 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 John McWhorter in his book, Woke Racism. Um, right, so how has this happened? Well, uh, yes. I talked about social homogeneity, but absolutely social media and particularly Twitter, maybe at the level of the college student, it's uh, some what well, some other platform that you guys are into now. But I mean, it's kind of terrifying. And I'm sure that it's much worse for you guys, even if you think, I mean, that's the problem is like, even if you think you have all the right opinions and you're saying all the right things, maybe you just didn't get the latest memo. Or maybe, because it gets even worse than that, right? Because you could say something now that's acceptable now. Hey, Barack Obama, up until about, uh, what was it, about 2014, he was still against gay marriage. Maybe 2013. I think the ruling was 2014. And that was, you know, that was a, I mean, he was a very mainstream Democrat. That was a very mainstream opinion. And if you... It's not just that if you say that now, you're evil. I mean, if you say that now, I would think that you're kind of a kind of evil. Um, I think you should be able to say it, but I still think it would be kind of evil. It's that even if you said it then, even if you say something now that isn't bad until next year, and as you say, the problem is that nothing ever goes away because, you know, everyone is now, oh God, it's just, I'm so glad I'm not young in this respect. I cannot imagine what it must be like, like to live and to not know when someone's recording you and is going to try to destroy you. So well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Thankfully, Zoom has messages now that tell you when you're being reported. So at least there's that. Yeah, sure. well, Zoom, but what about just, <laughs> just someone's cell phone? No, I, I know, I'm kidding. I, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, hey, I've worried about that, even just publishing this podcast, like, is something that I say yeah. is a question I ask now going to be used against me in the future? I think it's definitely or, a very, yeah. Or just something that I just said, is that going <laughs> to be used against you? Are you going to be canceled because you're platforming me? Are yeah. you? Uh, I hope, I hope not. not. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I hope not to. Okay. Um, yeah. And on the same lines, I think the interesting thing too about technology in, in recent years is we've just seen like the hugest, you know, uptake in platforms like Zoom because of COVID. And I spent a year and a half online because of COVID and learning online. So what do you think that technology has done to education? Well, again, I would just be repeating stuff that I've read, uh, but, all, but also being able to discern you know, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Because come to think of it, uh, I just remembered that in Excellent Sheep, I talked about a, an earlier form of online education because when I, when I, so that came out in 2014. So I was writing it like 2012, 2013. That was the heyday of the MOOC, the massive open online course. All of a sudden there was this new technology where you know Yale could tape a bunch of lectures on you know Victorian literature by their big Victorian literature scholar and put it online and no one was going to have to go to college anymore and this is what Khan Academy grew out of 
right? And, and you know, from what I understand, Khan Academy is a great resource, but the MOOCs were gonna, you know, this is when the technology uh, people, uh, especially the ones who were running the, the business, who had started the businesses that were selling the MOOCs, like uh, Udacity was one and Coursera was another. And there was a lot of hype as there always is in the tech world. And they were talking about how in 10 years, there are only going to be 50 universities in the world. That was the prediction. 10 years, all the other universities that don't have brand names like Stanford and, and Princeton are gonna be wiped out by these courses. Um, and we've, we've passed the 10 year mark a while ago. And I don't actually hear very much about MOOCs anymore because what people figured out, well, what they figured out is what every parent and child in America figured out when we went into lockdown in March of 2020, which is that online learning sucks. I mean, Khan Academy is great if you've already been to college or you're really motivated and you're really smart and you can self-educate. But teaching, teaching and learning are emotional activities. They're social activities, they're relational activities. Um, they happen between students and teachers and between students and students. And we know that online and even worse online classes where there are you know, 20 or 40 people in the class are just an incredibly impoverished way of transmitting social information. So many people don't get this. Politicians don't get this because of course they wanna save all the money they spend on colleges and they hate colleges anyway, the Republicans. Um, people think that education is information transfer, okay? That's the lowest level of education. Um, the levels above that pretty much need to happen in person. And I think, you know, you and every, you know, your generation were, were the guinea pigs in this experiment, right? What was it like for you? I mean, I didn't, I don't think any, I don't think anyone besides maybe a very few number of students who I know would would want to do that again. So I do think it's gonna be um, interesting to see if this almost sort of, sort of slightly anti-technology stance carries into our adult lives. Like I wonder if we will take the experiences we've learned from this and forget them when, you know, metaverse becomes the big thing or if- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder. Yeah. Another question I wanted to ask is also an excellent sheet. That was a book written um, mainly about millennials. So how do you think Gen Z is different from millennials? Right. Um, again, not something I have uh, firsthand experience with. You know, I read some stuff about this, but I, I do, as you saw in the expression of my face, and this is why you hesitated. Um, I never thought of Excellent Sheep as being about millennials per se. It's a book about what the meritocratic process of selective college admissions does to kids and the kinds of adults it produces. And that system, as I talk about in the book, was put in place basically in the mid to late 60s. Everyone since then, it's, it has gotten worse and worse and worse, but everyone since then has been a product of the system. Yeah. And that would include millennials and it would include Gen Z. I don't know why it would be different for Gen Z like a lot of the experiences that the book is based on and the people that were talked to in the book were probably millennials. That's, I guess. I think that's fair. That's a fair statement. I never thought about this, but if you date the millennial generation from 1980, and I know some people disagree, then my first students at Yale in 1998 were the first students, were the first millennials. So there you go. Yeah. I know we sort of we're circling back to like the earlier questions, but I guess I just have a hard time believing that only the trends have gotten worse. That's like the only thing that's changed. So have well, what do you think has changed? changed? I think that technology was not the same in 20, 2014 as it is now. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how that's how that has impacted education. Okay, college. so fine, fine. So uh, I'm still gonna end up in the same place as the trends have gotten worse and you may not be happy about that. So in terms of the very narrow issue of elite college admissions, I don't think anything significant has changed. It has just continued to get worse as it's been getting worse for literally 50 plus years. But, and I've argued with some parents about this more recently, 
because when I wrote that, okay, so that I finished writing it in 2013 and, you know, Facebook was already 10 years old, but the adoption was still happening. And more to the point, much more to the point, the iPhone was only five years old and the adoption was definitely still happening. And you may know a book called iGen by Jean Twenge uh, with an extremely long subtitle, but it's basically about how, um, it's basically about how the iPhone has like deeply screwed up adolescents. And there, and you can look at various charts like suicide, depression, loneliness, how often you go out with your friends, um, various other things. And there's steep inflection points right around 2012, which is when the iPhone passed 50% of adoption. I was just looking, there's, she published an article in the Atlantic when the book came out in 2017. T-W-E-N-G-E, Jean Twenge, and the book is iGen. So um, none of that was in my thinking when I wrote Excellent Sheep, right? I didn't talk about social media, really. I had started to write essays about it, but I don't think there's much in, in, in Excellent Sheep, much at all about social media. Social media is a different phenomenon, but in many ways, the effects are, are reinforcing. What effects? Anxiety, stress, depression, the tendency always to look to other people for your sense of self and your sense of self-validation, right? So I'm writing about your, you know, being too dependent on your parents' opinion, being too dependent on what college you get into says about yourself. Now you guys have this whole other layer that's constantly present in your life, like you know, are your friends validating you? You post a picture, do your friends say, oh, you're gorgeous, or do they not enough of them say that? And all of a sudden you hate yourself, right? So the, the psychological effects of, the, of, of excellent sheephood, which is what I start the book with, uh, again, just looking at the numbers, looking at what psychological surveys are telling us, it, it seems like it's gotten even worse because of technology. Yeah, I guess that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it, too, because I guess then the trend would be that even the even steeper trend would be that we've been just quantifying different aspects of our lives um, even more and more. Like social media has quantified how many friends we have, um, just like the SATs have quantified how smart we are. I think that's a great point. And I think the quantification of everything and the gamification of everything is, is just a horrible dehumanizing uh fact trend in modern life yeah so I was going to ask about this too so I had a question about yeah. social media and then I also had a question about the mental health problems um among teens you know I think that's another that might be another difference between generation z and millennials or is that you know I think a lot of millennials didn't face the same we've seen like a super sharp rise in the number of like suicides, a number of mental health issues. Um, so I think that probably has to do with many different things. I mean, it obviously has to do with many different things. But in terms of college, how do you think that college admissions is factored into that? Right. And this is what I was just talking about. This is what Jean Twenge writes about. Um, yeah. these, these sudden rises or, or falls in these various indices of, of mental well-being. Um, you asked me, how does college admissions factor into that? Well, I mean, that's so much of what Excellent Sheep is about, is that for a certain big slice of American society and probably you and all of your peers and your parents and your you know communities that you come from, the whole, I mean, an enormous amount of self-worth is dependent on that name. Where'd you go to school? Where are your kids at school? What does the bumper sticker say? What, is this, what does the sweatshirt say? Um, you know, people have talked about this. We don't have a class system in this country in the same way that they do in Europe. We don't sort of inherit our status in the same way that we do. And colleges for a long time, really, I mean, uh, since the late 19th century, the big names, starting with Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, have become these status-conferring institutions. And they follow you throughout your life, or at least you think, you, they, you think they do. I mean, after a certain point, nobody actually cares, but you're probably going to drop the name anyway, if you possibly can, because he thinks, right. Um, so, and, and because of 
the way that our society has grown increasingly unequal just economically in the last 50 years, because that's corresponded with the meritocracy is what we call neoliberalism and the, and the curves of you know, inequality decreased starting with the Great Depression till the early 70s, then the, then the trend lines reversed and it started to get wider and wider and wider. So there are also you know, concrete economic reasons for wanting to get into a prestigious college. So, you know, it, you know, it's it's like, well, it's just your entire life riding on this. And you're, you know, you're 16, you're 18, you're 14. Like, how could this not cause just crippling stress and anxiety? Now, I don't think your whole life is riding on this. But this is this is the message that gets transmitted. Yeah, I think also that's interesting, but let's I'll poke at that a little bit. What about in college? Once you're in those elite institutions, there's been a rise in the mental health crises and sure. problems. Sure. And I'm going to repeat something that you read in Excellent Sheep, which is that uh, the saddest thing for me back when I was a professor and then when I started to talk at, talked at a lot of high schools is, uh, you know, I get a new, as a professor, I get an advisee first semester, for, uh, first week of freshman year, or I'd go talk to high schools, I'd talk to high school seniors, and these people would say to me, oh, now that I'm in college or once I'm in college, it's gonna be great because I'm not gonna have to worry. I've already gotten in. And I felt so sad for them because I know that, you know, the first week is great and then the second week is great. And then you start to hear about, oh, you start to hear about consulting. No one's ever heard of consulting before they get to college. and then." By the time you know the first month is over, twenty percent of of everyone in college is suddenly worried about whether they're going to get a consulting job, and the ones who aren't are worried about whether they're going to get a banking job, or it's law school, or it's tech now. In other words, the rat race quickly restarts with all the same dynamics, and that's your I, answer. Yeah, I have a cousin who goes to Pomona, and. I just remember I was I said the exact same thing to him that you've heard so many times. Oh well, it'll it'll all be over when I get to college. And he says, "No, like the rat race will continue for the rest of your life." And I was like, "Okay, that's a mean thing to say to me, your cousin." And I kind of just wrote it off, but I think it is true. You know, it doesn't you have I definitely think that I've had this idea and a lot of my peers have had this idea that like once you're in college everything stops. But it no. does not. <laughs> just look at your parent. Just look at the adults in your life and, and ask yourself how they're living. But the one thing I would dispute, and this is the reason I wrote Excellent Sheep, is that it doesn't have to continue. It doesn't. Yeah. As long as you want under- Now, listen, I don't say that there aren't going to be trade-offs. There will be trade-offs. You will probably, I mean, if you decide to try to live a life that feels like a life that's right for you, a life where you can, I don't want to say, I hate words like passion or purpose or bliss, but look, I mean, I think people know when they're working from what the psychologists call intrinsic motivation, when they're doing things because they like to do them, because they want to do them, it feels right to them. It feels like who they are. It feels like what they've always cared about. If you do that, the chances are very good, especially if you know you're an elite kid and you could go to an elite college or you're at an elite college, that you're gonna end up with less status, maybe less money than, uh, than you would otherwise. But, but if you do continue to pursue all the goals that, well, then, then you're gonna be very likely to be miserable so, so it seems like a trade-off that's worth making. Yeah, yeah going back to, sorry, keep going. No, go ahead. Uh, going back to the point about mental health too, I think another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, and I, I'm curious to hear if you'd agree, once you're in college and even before that in high schools and elite high schools that try to prepare you for elite college, you're hearing and thinking and getting being surrounded with lots of depressing ideas about the world and about life and about mm. all these problems you're just kind of constantly surrounded with news i think at a young age and that's kind of been perpetuated by 
you know, you go to an elite college and you just continually hear about news and you're forced to think about these huge ideas. And I do think that's also, that's also contributed to it. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think the same. I agree with that. And I think maybe that is one big difference between Gen Z and millennials, understanding that there isn't a sharp line between the generation, generations. Yeah, you guys are growing up at a really scary time. And um, it makes perfect sense that you're really stressed out about that. The only thing I would say is that um, none of us knows what the future is actually going to hold. And I'm old enough now to have lived through, let's see if I can count them off, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, 9-11, the financial collapse in 2008, the election of Donald Trump, the pandemic. I list those things not only because they were huge events, but because none of them was predictable or had been predicted until the day they happened. So history takes sharp right and left turns. I'm not an optimist, but I'm also not a pessimist because I just fundamentally think that the future is unknowable. And that helps me with a lot of the anxiety and despair that I would otherwise feel because I also read the news. Yeah. I also think though that, you know, we can't exactly say to, you know, colleges and students who are trying to like learn how to think, uh, the news, it's just going to make you depressed. I do think there's kind of a balance that we have to strike. And I think we're, we might be leaning too heavily on the side of just like pounding kids with news all the time because I do think at some point it it's kind of suffocating um it begins to feel like there's nothing at all you can do about it um yeah so can yeah. I say something else about that yeah I think it I think it might partly have to do with there's a certain kind of model that's unconsciously emerged of it's a model of reality and it's also sort of a model of how to live your life and it's a model that basically sees reality as a series of problems that it's your job to solve. So, so you know, social problems, social problems, social. I mean, there are social problems, but it's but but it's like the entire world gets described that way. And uh, and I think that's a real distortion of reality. I mean, not everything is a problem, and or even not a problem. I mean, there's much of life and much of society that is neither a problem nor like whatever the opposite of a problem is. But, but uh, and and you know, sort of secondarily, one of the problems I have with the phrase social justice, but also the way it's used in educational contexts, is that it can narrow people's understanding of what their of what a contribution looks like, of what their vocation might look like. Like you've got to do something that responds directly to one of these problems. I, I had a student, I forget if I mentioned her in Excellent Sheep or not. She was a really gifted musician. And she was telling me like, well, I wanna pursue music, but I can't pursue music because you know, music isn't really important. It's not a, and I'm like, oh, okay, so I guess Bob Dylan hasn't been important to you. And you know, she laughed. I knew Bob Dylan was her favorite musician. And of course she knows that he's, been important to millions of people. So the, if, you know, if your goal in life is to make a contribution, make the world a better place, help other people, there, there's a limitless number of ways to do that. And many of them don't have anything to do with quote unquote solving problems. I think that's also kind of a fundamental problem with meritocracy too, is it becomes, if you're looking at like an extreme meritocracy, very hard to value art. Like there's no objective way to value art. I completely agree with that. It's that's never occurred to me. That's 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 right. Uh, and also, and this has been a problem. You may know that my last book before the collection was about the arts economy. It's called the death of the artist because it's about what the internet has done to like musicians and so forth trying to make a living. But one relatively small piece of that is that philanthropy which used to, you know, there used to be a lot of art support in philanthropy, and there's still some, but especially with the newer generation of philanthropists, there's been a real turn away from the arts because A, they don't seem to have an immediate impact, right? Well, how do they make people's lives better? And B, and this gets back to what you said about metrics, about numbers, how do you measure the impact of the arts? How do you put a number on it? Well, you can't really put a number on it. 
So therefore, the, the benefits of the arts are no longer visible. Yeah, I think it again goes back to like quantifying things in our society. And, you know, I do, I do think it's a harder choice now with the globalized economy we have. It's a, it's a choice that we didn't have before. What are you going to do? Invest in theater or invest in malaria nets? And it's like, okay, well, mm. there's, there's a choice here that seems more morally and ethically good than the other. And I say that as someone who loves to do theater and spends a lot of right, time doing right. theater. I don't think that's a result of globalization. I mean, yes, it's easier to invest in malaria nets per se in some other country, but certainly, you know, sort of basic social needs philanthropy has existed ever since this whole construct has existed, which is, you know, I mean, Dickens is writing about this. So middle of the 19th century at the latest. So I don't really think that's the issue. I think it has to do with the way uh, the arts have just become just more and more devalued in a society that only understands things in terms of numbers, in terms of problems, in terms of STEM fields, um, in terms of a certain conception of meritocracy that you were that you were gesturing towards. Yeah, I do think though it has like Dickens couldn't have shipped malaria nets overnight. No, but but his but his but the people he writes about, I think it's Mrs. Jellyby. Um, you know, they're doing philanthropy among London's poor. So the same conflict existed, even if it didn't exist at a global level. That's my point. Yeah. But that did not prevent, you know, I don't know, Carnegie from contributing on both sides. So how do you think we get out of that? How do you think we put, how do you think our society can shift towards a society that quantifies less? Oh God! I know it's it's a huge I question. I don't have this. I, I I listen. I don't have the slightest idea. Um, I mean, you know, more and more now, right? I mean, the early days of the internet, especially sort of, I mean, like Web two point especially. So, like the first decade, decade and a half of this millennium, you know, tech could do no wrong. People thought we were heading towards the tech utopia. The tech leaders like Zuckerberg were great heroes. And then people started to notice how much this stuff sucked and how it was you know, ruining their lives. So they were either addicts to social media or they were gig workers who were getting ripped off by Uber. So there's a tremendous, I mean, this is not directly about what you said, but, but there is now a tremendous amount of discontent. The question is, is that discontent, can it be harnessed in any way? Because I mean, I don't want to use the political system. I don't want to use the political system to try to, you know, get corporations. I mean, in some respects, yes, but it's like I don't want to ban Facebook or tell Facebook how to do its business. I really, I don't think that's a good precedent. So I don't know. There's so much stuff now where people talk about, ugh, I mean, I hate this, you know, people write essays about how terrible social media is but they talk about it as if they themselves, as well as everybody else, were helpless to do anything about their own social media habits. Uh, how we get out of that mindset, I don't know, but I would certainly, that would certainly be a point of attack for me. It's like trying to get people, you know, the learned helplessness, we have to get out of that. I think that's also part of culture, part of this, religious elite culture of, you know, uh, you want to be the victim, you get more like social credibility, if you are a marginalized person in some form. Yeah. And that helplessness gives you some like street cred. Yeah. That I think is I, interesting. I think that that's true. And, and people talked about this uh, with feminism. I mean, feminist, feminist critiques of mainstream feminism will talk about how you know, if you go back, I mean, let alone to the real second wave of the 70s, but even the 80s and 90s, feminism was about empowerment. It was about being powerful. And now it seems to be about being helpless. Um, but culture is really, really hard to change. Culture is very hard to change. Yeah, and as I was thinking about this, I think the other interesting thing is this is not a, my, this venture of podcasting, is not a STEM thing. It's a very like liberal artsy kind of, you know, having conversations. It's not a very 
uh, numeric thing, except that I can see, I can go on to Anchor and see how many people have viewed it from what countries they live in. And so in that sense, I do think art and things like, you know, if you post a video on YouTube doing a play, then people can like the YouTube video and you can see how many people like the video and you can compare that. So I do think that there is a way in which art has been commodified um, and quantified. Fair enough. It's true. It's true. And that's the, you know, that's the currency for everything now is the clicks and the likes. Right. But then in another way that, you know, if I didn't have that system, if we didn't have the system of technology we have now that has enabled this quantification, we also wouldn't have this technology that's enabled me to send you a Zoom link and listen to you. Listen, um, I, I'm glad you've given me the chance to say that I'm not against technology. I think it would, it's idiotic to say that you're against technology or even that you're against for techno uh, that you're for technology because technology is many different technologies and also it's all about how we use it. I think that's what we're talking about now is not abolishing these tools, but figuring out a different relationship with them if the relationship we have with them is not satisfying. And I'm saying that it's really hard to change this on a large scale because culture is distributed, right? It's not like you can pass a law. You can't change the tax code. But on an individual level, and this is why I wrote Excellent Sheep, it wasn't to change the system. It was for every individual student or parent who might read it and try to try to convince them that they have more power to live their lives the way they want to than they think they do. And it's the same with social media or the same with our reliance on numbers. And I, I do think though that there's also a way that technology can promote art as well as STEM. And it might be something that we have to like switch our mindset, like you're saying. Um, but, you know, I, when I was, I started this podcast during COVID when we were on online school and, you know, I was not satisfied as many of, as basically all of my peers were with the education I was getting, but I also found a way to use the technology that was making me so dissatisfied and turn that into something that is more an artistic venture than anything else, I think, in my opinion. Again, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not only possible, but inevitable that more and more art is going to be uh, made and certainly distributed, but even just made with the medium of the new tools. I mean, that's how art has always worked. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I have some problems with it, but we didn't need to talk about it because, you know, I think the hand is essential in the making of, of certain kinds of art. But, um, but you don't yeah, like NFT I, art? Know. It's the whole, it's just the whole thing is just a giant bubble of hype. It's, it's ridiculous. But uh, yeah, because anyway. I was going to say, then there's this whole other sphere of art now online art where you can sell you can yeah. sell your art with using nfts so that's yeah i mean we could we could talk about that but i mean like i said i think it's really just the latest kind of hype bubble and and just market bubble in the arts but um but 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 the actual you know the actual creation of electronic art or electronic music i mean of course this is going to be a huge thing and it should be and i don't have a problem so how do you separate the bubble art, the NFT bubble art from the credible art? Well, again, I mean, with NFTs, and it's another thing that I don't know a ton about, but it's, it's not even so much the artwork per se, is that it's this, it's this new market, you know, like you said, it's a way that a certain kind of art, that electronic art can be commodified can be sold. How do you take something that is in theory infinitely reproducible and turn it into unique into a unique object? And that created this, I mean, the, the, of all the arts economies, all the economies of the different arts are extremely unequal. Like in society at large, we have this terrible problem of inequality where like 20 something percent of people own 1% of the wealth. In music, that number is like 60%. Okay, so the top 1% of artists get 60% of the money. The art that's the worst is visual art. So two thirds of all the sales of living artists globally go to 20 people. Okay, Jeff Koons is selling stuff for $100 million. And then there are lots and lots and lots of artists that are barely selling at all. 
the NFT thing has just reproduced that in a different way because it's exactly the same with NFTs. Most of them don't sell for anything. Some of them sell for a few hundred dollars. And then people, these idiot journalists write articles about the ones that sell for $60 million. So it hasn't actually changed anything. That's my point. Right. Whereas, you know, podcasts, most of them, I think most of them are, you can use Spotify and you can find them. Maybe you have to listen to an ad or two, but it's still like accessible to more people. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So as we wrap up, my last question is just, if you had anything you wanted to add that you didn't get to talk about. No, uh, this was really thorough. And you asked me a lot of questions that nobody else asked me. So, which I really appreciate because I do a lot of these. So thank you. Yeah, anytime. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome.